0: Before we uh, begin the sermon today, I I almost feel like it would be inappropriate for me not to do something, to not point something out in our building and and tell you why we left it the way it is. The, The bottom walls, you can see, were left effectively untouched. If you look up at our roof, you'll see nails hanging out of it. That was obviously left untouched. The reason for that is we wanted a physical, tangible reminder in this sanctuary That while this is our first gathering in here, it is not the first gathering in here. That 80 years ago, including some people who got married at this church, who are in this room right now, true story, 80 years ago, men, women, and children were doing what we are doing right now. That we didn't build this, we renovated this building. That 80 years ago, brothers and sisters of ours, people who we will never meet, gathered together to do what we're doing. We have said it the entire time for a decade. We, we are not new, we are not novel. We are standing on the shoulders of men and women who have gone before us for centuries. And we wanted a tangible reminder in our sanctuary of that. And so what I wanna do before I begin the sermon is I, I wanna pray. I wanna pray for those men, women, and children who we will likely have never met. I wanna pray a prayer of gratitude for them. And then we'll begin the sermon. Father, thank you for the men, the women, and the children who have gathered in this space, who have sat under your word being taught, who have come to your table. We pray favor for them, blessing for them. We hope, we ask for generations of faithfulness to be the fruit of what happened in this room 80, 70, 60, 50, 40 years ago, and then we pray for the same 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80 years from now. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week we began a series for Lent, a, a bit of a vision series, if you will, as we move into this sanctuary. We, we began it like this. We said that for, the, for 10 years, for 10 years we have said that the building is not the church. The building is a building. The people are the church who gather in the building. And so as we move into a new sanctuary, we wanted to ask this question, what kind of church do we want to fill it what kind of church do we want to fill this new sanctuary? And we wanted to let Solomon's prayer for the temple be our prayer for us. And so last week we, we said that his, his prayer began like this, that the temple would be a place, a house, where the name, where the reputation of God would go forth among the nations. And now this week we begin the how. How will God's name, how will God's reputation be made known in the world. And so today, we hit Solomon's prayer where it says that my prayer is this that the temple would be a house for the afflicted. That word afflicted, it means in kind of modern parlance, persistent suffering. This persistent, ongoing suffering, which actually makes it a good term for the kind of broad range of biblical imagery that it represents. This suffering, this persistent suffering, it is an unavoidable, inescapable reality. I don't feel like I need to prove that in this room. I think we all know that, that in this room right now, we have people dealing with the pain of cancer, the pain of divorce, the aftermath of the death of people that we love. We have people dealing with the pain of trying to navigate life as an adult, having grown up with distant mothers and fathers, even inside our own homes. I don't think I need to prove this. If you read philosophers, both modern and ancient, you're going to find this common question. Why? Why? Why pain? Why disease? Why suffering? Why affliction? And that question, why, is going to take us to the heart of Solomon's prayer. His prayer to the temple would be a place, a house for the afflicted. And getting to the heart of Solomon's prayer will take us to why it's imperative that we remain a community that is welcoming, welcoming, inviting to the hurting, the afflicted, the suffering. But we'll get to that in a minute. Right now, let's get into 1 Kings 8, verse 37. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, or, bl- or blight, or mildew, or locusts, or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is. Okay, so verse 37, this this section of his prayer, he gives this list of afflictions, this list of common causes of suffering in their life. And rather than kind of going one by one through them, I, I want to show you the point of the list, that this list is intended to be holistic, a holistic look at suffering, this holistic look at affliction in their world from scorching winds that destroy to too much rain that destroys to insects that eat your vegetation to enemies that attack your body from outside to cells that attack your body from inside. It's meant to be a holistic look. This is a summary list. It's, it's, uh, It's Solomon saying on one hand, if there is any and all affliction out there, if there is any suffering out there, That's not all he's doing. He's praying in the company, in the presence of Israelites. And those that he was praying in the presence of, they would have picked up on something. This list right here would have taken them back to the book of Deuteronomy. Would have taken them back to Deuteronomy 28. This book of Deuteronomy, this was essentially a series of sermons preached by Moses. Moses pleading with them, uh, be faithful Israel. God has delivered you out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and so remain faithful to him. Be an obedient community to him. And then in the middle, in the heart of 28, 28 chapter 28 is this list of hey, if, if you do this, live like this, you live. You do this, live like this, you die. And in the middle of chapter 28, it says, verse 58 If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Flag that back to last week. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring, extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, sickness grievous and lasting. See, for Israel, the the question of why this is happening would not have been a complex philosophical question. They would have known that what's happening is the fruit of their unfaithfulness, the fruit of their drifting, that the story of Israel was a story of a nation whose heart worshiped other gods. There was a first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Israel obeyed that command for around seven seconds. One example, the book of Hosea, Hosea, a pretty well-known book in the Old Testament about a man who was told, hey, go and pursue your unfaithful wife. That book is about God's pursuit of an unfaithful Israel. This list in 1 Kings would have taken them back to Deuteronomy 28. They would have known this is the fruit, what's happening is the fruit of our unfaithfulness, but that's not all that they would have thought of. It's not the only place they would have gone to. They'd have also gone all the way back to Genesis 3. I remember, much of this list was uh, vegetation, food. And in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, he, here's what's described. Because you, that's Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife, that have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. You see this suffering, this affliction that they were going through. It would have also taken them back to Genesis 3. They would have known that this is the effect of life in a broken world. Life in a world that is not the way that it was intended to be. And as one commentator put it, because it is, therefore affliction suffering is just part of the general human condition. It's just part of the general human condition in a fallen world. And because it's part of the general human condition, we need to broaden out and see a picture of how uh, the Bible describes this affliction or sufferings more broadly. The Bible, if we look at it more broadly, it's going to put it into kind of three categories, that there's not just one kind, there are at least three. There is physical suffering, there is emotional suffering, and there is spiritual suffering. A cursory glance at the Psalms, and you will see all of these. But not just the Psalms, if we go to the New Testament, there are six what we call categories of affliction, six lists that are categorizing afflictions that have all three in there as well. So here's the point. First Kings, and when we look more broadly, we see this. That suffering, affliction, it touches every part of our lives. Suffering or affliction is never compartmentalized. It affects the entirety of who we are. It is an unavoidable reality. It is physical, it is emotional, and it is spiritual. But that's not all Solomon has to say about affliction. Look at the first part of verse 38. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel. Flag that, any man or all your people Israel, that this is both individual and communal, that suffering affects me and it affects us, it affects you, and it affects the entirety. We suffer together. Any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. Each knowing the affliction of his own heart. What does that mean? What does it mean, knowing the affliction of your own heart. If I could illustrate it this way, if I, if I said it to you, he knows the personality of his own wife, or she knows the personality of her own roommate, what does that mean? That means that they know the personality that comes out of, that belongs to that person. See, the affliction of our own heart, it's, it's not just what affects me, it's what comes out of me. Affliction that belongs to my own heart. It is what flows from me. That when the Bible uses affliction of my own heart, it's not simply speaking of how what you do affects me. It's how what I do affects everyone else. It's what comes out of me. And when uh, the Bible uses the word heart, it's more than just emotions. Uh, the word heart in the Scriptures is not what I feel about what I feel about. It's intellect, its will, its desires. It's to use a modern idiom. It's what makes us tick. It's what we want most out of life. It's what drives us. And what's saying is that what I want, what I desire most out of life, what makes me tick has been distorted. That in of itself has been afflicted. And so affliction isn't just something that happens to me, it's something I do to other people. Not always on purpose. Not always on purpose. But nonetheless, in a fallen world with hearts of affliction, Injured hearts injure people. Let me give two examples. One me, one us. I have uh, three girls and one boy. Uh, The obedience quotient went down with each child pretty drastically. And when they act up in public and they act up in public, uh, I get embarrassed. Uh, I get embarrassed and I can quickly boil on the inside. I try not to show it so much on the outside. But on the inside, I can boil. Because I care what you think of me. I want you to think I'm a good parent. And so when my kids are just going in a rage, I can rage not because I care what's best for them, because I want what's best for them, but because of how they're making me look in your eyes. What is that? That is my distorted desires. The affliction of my heart, caring more about what you think of me than what's best for my children, and I can boil and I can cause wounds in them. One day they will be in Dodd's office talking about me. And Dodds will say, repent, little child. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, here, here's one for us. I heard a talk this week that said 15 years into social media, here's the effect. The net effect of social media, here it is. Envy, anxiety, distraction. Why? Because what do we do on social media? We project an imaginary life, right? I have an image of of myself that I want you to believe of me, so I project that imaginary life out into the world. Other people see it. They know their life doesn't add up to my imaginary life, and it creates envy that leads to anxiety. And because I'm not satisfied with my own life, I distract myself to death with the life of other people. What is that? Distorted desires in my heart, deeply wanting other people to think, X, Y, and Z of my life, so I put it out into the world a life that is not true, that is imaginary, that they will never live up to. And it creates wounds. Creates wounds. See, here's what I'm hoping that we will see what I was hoping to illustrate, something that Solomon clearly knew that the problems of the world are not just out there, they are in here. The problems of your life are not just what's around you, they are not just Houston's lack of mountain scenery or its smothering August heat. The problems of life sit within each one of us. There is a deep inside each one of us. And if we can agree on that, we can begin to ask what can be done about it. And if we can agree on that, we will be able to hear what Solomon tells us. Let's keep reading. We'll start back in verse 38. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any or all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and stretching out his hands toward this house. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So here is Solomon's prayer. When someone knows their heart, when someone knows the afflictions of their own heart, and he stretches out his hands toward this house, I'm pleading with you to hear and to forgive. What's the point of stretching out your hands? What did this mean? Well, in the ancient world, it was thought that the actions of the hands flow from the heart. And so stretching out hands toward this house was symbolic of offering your heart up to God. It was him saying, listen, I know the condition of my heart. I know what is going on inside of me. And I know that I can't do anything about it. And so I'm holding up my hands to you saying, I need you to heal. I need you to heal what is wrong with me. Which is why he doesn't just stop at asking forgiveness. He says, I want you to forgive. I want you to act. And I want you to render. Render to them. When they hold their hands up to this house, render to them the life that you promised to our fathers. Render to them the land that you promised to Abraham. And this word render, it's an interesting word choice. It's an interesting word choice because it's got roots back in the very beginning of the Bible. Back in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 3. Genesis 1, and God said, behold, I have given, that's the word rendered. I have rendered you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree was seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So in creation, God says, hey, I've rendered to you this. But then we hit Genesis 3, and it all goes wrong. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave, there it is again, rendered, some to her husband who was with her, and He ate. You see, when he uses this word, when Solomon uses this word, here's what he is saying. Here's what his plea is. His cry is not just to forgive, but to undo the effects of the fall in our life. Undo the effects of the brokenness of the world in our life. Render to us the way life was meant to be. I'm asking you to heal. I recognize that the problem isn't just out there. I know the affliction of my heart. I know the problem isn't just out there in the world. I know that the problem is here in me. I know it is inside me. God, heal, restore. I am holding up my hands to you, offering my heart to you, saying, heal and restore me. And one day you would. One day. God would send his son into the world who would go to a cross and on that cross, you know what he did? He held his hands up to heaven and he offered his heart to the Father and he offered his heart for you and he offered it for me and when he did, it wasn't just his hands that were struck, it was his heart that was pierced. It was his heart that was pierced. Struck with your sin and with mine with a full weight of the effect of Genesis 3 on our life, on him, on the cross, Jesus experienced the depths of depths of affliction, physical, emotional, spiritual, that it was real nails that went through real hands. And it was a real cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was real clouds that went dark. On the cross, Jesus stood in your place, the afflicted one's place, and experienced the depths of it, the depths of it for you and for me. And he did so, so that your suffering your affliction would have eternal significance. Listen to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is a book in the New Testament written in light of Jesus suffering to a suffering church. Listen to how it begins in chapter one. The, the Paul, who's the author of Second Corinthians, incredibly honest. Incredibly honest here. He he has no trite, no pithy platitudes about life. He doesn't sugarcoat what he's been going through. If you think. The Bible is simply an ancient religious book, completely disconnected from real life. You could not be more wrong. Listen to Paul. For we do not want you to to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is the Apostle Paul. Wrote the majority of the New Testament. The apostle Paul saying, listen, here's what I I don't want you to be unaware of. Here's what I want you guys to know, that the afflictions that we experienced, they were so heavy, so burdensome on me that we despised of life itself. This was Paul saying, we didn't know, I didn't know if we could go on. I didn't know if we could take any more. I didn't know if I could look at my life for one more second. I didn't know if I could take any more. If that's not real life for us, I don't know what is. If you have never been in a place where you say, I just don't know if I can take it anymore, I assume you're one of our children. I don't know. Who hasn't been there? Paul is saying the weight of my affliction was crushing my soul. And now listen in chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying that the affliction that was crushing me also has work to do, and its work is preparing me for eternity. It is loosening my hands around the things that are transient in this life. And when you can see your suffering in light of Jesus' suffering, then you can see Jesus' suffering and your suffering working in tandem to prepare you for eternity. You see that your suffering has an eternal purpose. It is never wasted. Does that mean that we see it? Does that mean that we get to understand its eternal purpose? Of course, that doesn't mean we always get to see and understand. But one day you will. One day I will. We live today in a world that is not as it should be. For much of the world, it looks like First Kings, famine, war. For many of our neighbors and for us, it looks like not enough food, not enough shelter. For some of us and our neighbors, it looks like the aftermath of divorce. It looks like loneliness because I'm single and can't take it any longer. It looks like my marriage hanging on by a thread and no one really knowing it. So why is it so important that Solomon's prayer is our prayer? Why so important that we... We remain a house for the afflicted, because we are the afflicted. When Solomon prayed for those who experienced the affliction of their own heart, his prayer was us. He was talking about us. He was talking about you. And so no matter how beautiful our sanctuary is, and it is, we have to fight to remain a ruggedly honest, transparent, and vulnerable community. That's why our parishes, these smaller groups of men, women, and children who, who gather together uh, on Sunday nights or on Tuesday night or uh, I believe it's Sunday and Tuesday, have meals together, have lived life, live life together. It's why they have to be safe spaces, safe spaces to cry, safe spaces to hurt, to say I'm, I'm hurting over X, Y, and Z, safe spaces to be honest and vulnerable about what's really going on in our life so that we together can take the grace of God and press it into the deepest, darkest, most painful parts of our lives and we can do it together. We have to be a community that is hospitable to one another in our own brokenness but we also have to remain a community that is welcoming to our neighbors the hurting the suffering the afflicted because Jesus heals Jesus heals Jesus heals earlier I said that in first kings what was happening was because of a lack of faithfulness and because of life in a broken and fallen world and here's what I wanted us to see in that here's what faithfulness looks like for us Here's what faithfulness looks like for us in light of Solomon's prayer. It looks like us remaining a community that presses into the brokenness in us and in our world, saying to everyone around us who will hear, come in, come in. There is plenty of healing in Jesus to go around. Come on in. You are welcome to bring the deepest and the darkest parts of your life, the most painful things that you have ever walked through, you are welcome to bring them into this community. We will not look at you funny. We will say Jesus heals to you. Come on in. Come on in. This is our prayer, Sojourn. This is our prayer that we would remain that we would remain a community that welcomes the hurting and the afflicted because it's you, it's us, and it's our neighbors. It's those who know the pain of life in a broken world who need the healing of Jesus. We say, come on in. And so here's how we're going to finish today. We're going to finish our gathering today the way that we finish every week. We are gonna to come to the table, and we are gonna to come to the table as an afflicted people in need of the hope and the healing of Jesus. And then... We are going to finish our first gathering singing the doxology over one another. And we are going to sing the doxology over one another as a reminder that every week we will come into this space as a hurting and afflicted people, lifting our voices to the heavens so that we can remember that the one who came from heaven, who was afflicted for us, is the one who heals. That's our prayer, Sojourn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the men and women in this room. Thank you that you sent your son into this world to be afflicted for us, that we could bring our affliction, our hurt, our heartache, our pain, our brokenness, and we could bring it to you. Thank you that we have been for 10 years now a community where the most hurting among us can find a safe space to say, I'm hurting, to where those who lack food and lack shelter can come into this community and find food and shelter. Would you keep us that way? Would you keep us that kind of community? Would you keep us as that kind of people? We know we'll take your mercy and your grace, and so we're asking for you to do it. And we ask in Christ's name, amen.